Hi there, it's been a while. Welcome to ADR. We're back with some pretty big news to share and our very first episode. Before we get to the episode, our big news is that we have partnered up with Streamtime to this year get out to more studios, more agencies and more creatives. We didn't do as many episodes as we probably wanted to in 2017 and we've been working with the team there to come up with a bit of a structure, and a bit of a plan on how we can reach more people, create more episodes and have more exciting conversations. Um, so shout out to Streamtime. If you don't know Streamtime, most of you probably do. They are a web-based project management tool. Uh, they also have a nifty little new app, uh, which we'll put in the description of this episode. We've been using it for a while um, to plan sort of everything that we're doing this year. But to cut to the chase, basically what we're going to do is we're going to go on tour through Australia to some of the major cities. So we could be coming to your town. Uh, we may do live shows. We'll see if there's interest in that. And if there are, we will do it. What we're mostly interested in is discovering each town and the studios and agencies and creatives that perhaps we should talk to. So if you would like us to visit your town um, and speak to some people that maybe we haven't had on the show before, we're really excited to do that. So drop us a line, um, get in touch. So more on that a little bit later, but thanks to Streamtime, we are back for 2018. And we have this kicker episode with Tim Clapham, director and founder of Lux. Uh, this one's for you motion designers out there. And uh, along with Matt and special guest and fun uncle of the show, Ian Hay, who stepped in for me. Hope you guys enjoy this episode and we'll be back with another one next week. Cheers. We're at ICC down at Darling Harbour with designer, director, animator, and Cinema 4D guy, Tim Clapham. Tim, hello. Hi, thank you for having me. <laughs> Not at all. Um, so, doing my uh, due diligence, I read that your dad was a keen photographer. You actually had a dark room at home. And you started out by studying fine arts and then found your way into film. In other words, you used to be analog. <laughs> Did does that analog beginning inform how you approach jobs now? And do you think it's important for students to have a grounding in some non-digital media, even if they're going into a digital world? <laughs> Start with a big question. Yeah, totally. <laughs> I mean, I like when I first studied at uni, it was we studied film and video. So it was all analog video. We'd edit on the three machine edit suite. But my, like my real passion then was film, which is non-linear editing anyway. Mm. But I did quite a lot of stop motion. And like learning, I mean, even learning how a camera works, I think is like kind of definitely going to give you a good background to creating 3D. You see a lot of 3D, for instance, which is like a landscape with shallow depth of field, you know, and you're like, it's a mini landscape. <laughs> so, yeah, I definitely think that helps. But just like the, the ground, the ground roots of like working with a pencil and being able to just sketch ideas. Yeah, it's definitely helpful. Well, a lot of what we do in, in the 3D world, they're all kind of analogs of the real world anyway. Mm. I mean, the idea that you've got cameras and objects and so on, I mean, we're, we're replicating the real world. So if you understand how it works. Yeah, definitely recently as well, what with things like Octane and then Redshift, V-Ray and all the physical cameras and everything based around real world dimensions. And it really helps to understand how those sort of pieces of machinery work in the real world so you can replicate that. If you don't really understand how an aperture works and that kind of thing, then you're not gonna be able to put that into your digital world yeah. but really I, I guess like although you do 3d 
Really, it's just a paintbrush, isn't it, at the end of the day? It's just a different tool out of your artist toolbox. So I tend to do mostly 3D, but my, I have done stop motion works, 2D animation, more traditional animation. With the Make It titles, Mike, one of the shots Mike did was just animated with keyframes, you know? Yeah. Like, no automatic process there, just grunt work. Yeah. Can I take you back to growing up? So you had a dark room. I had a dark room downstairs as well because both my parents were photographers. Yeah. What Were you allowed in the dark room? And did you get to play around with? Yeah, totally was. It was really good actually because my dad was a keen photographer. It was only black and white, but mm -hmm. then we would go out and shoot that and develop our own films and That's the best print, print our own. Isn't it? Yeah, for sure. Print our own photographs. And that worked, that worked well because when I went to uni, I studied fine art at uni, but they, were, they had a kind of course that was called time-based media. We had a dark room there. And like the film that we used to use, the Rostrum film, was like two ASA, like super slow. So you needed really bright lights to work with it, but you could actually develop it under a safe light. Right. So that was pretty cool. So you could develop it under a red light. And I got into doing like crazy stuff, like um, solarizing the film. So you know with the print, when you, you know when you print a photographic print you put it in the developer and then before you fix it you can switch the light on and yeah, solarize yeah. it yeah. i started doing that with film and stuff and right. doing kind of like experimental film and things and i guess that's sort of what's led it led me to where i am now to a certain extent so what what was the i mean going back to like being analog i guess what was the turning point for you when you went full digital yeah well that was funny because i left and i didn't really know what i was going to do with my career and i went and did like a desktop publishing course which was like page maker or something and then I did this desktop video course yeah. and it was in premiere premiere 2 2 I think oh wow and I'd never seen nonlinear editing on a computer before and I was just blown away yeah. with like the cut copy and paste and the whole like timeline thing and yeah. and I'd been used to using three machine edit suite with like large format umatic tapes which is just the most yeah. awful process in the world where if you want to do an insert edit you know you literally have to copy everything off the tape after that point, insert your clip and then copy it all back again. <laughs> yeah. It's like there's no streamline in that process at all. So yeah, I saw Premiere and I was blown away. And then I started working at this Apple Center and I was just doing a, like running a bureau that they had, which was all digital scanning and stuff. And one of my mates who I was at uni with, he'd gone to London, was working at a post house there and he came down one weekend and showed me After Effects. It's After Effects 3.1. It was After Effects 3.1 Pro, but we didn't have the dongle. So I always wondered what those I always wondered what those pro yeah. features were, yeah. but I was like, because I used to Photoshop a little bit, and I'm like, oh my god, now we can do all this with time, yeah, and that was like the, that was like the, the tipping point I think when I, I I started doing it. So I was working at this Apple Center, and one of my customers, he was a designer, and he decided to leave and start his own company, and then he he had some um, friends at Publicis in London, and they gave us a job for like five Lego TV ads. So we were like straight in at the deep end. Wow. So I did all the After Effects work and stuff on that. I didn't really do much 3D then. And you were literally learning as you were. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Learn on the job. Still do. <laughs> <laughs> um, that uh, leads me into this other question, which was obviously one of the things that you're most well known for in the industry is you do a lot of tutorials. And I think that mm. it's probably fair to say that most everybody who has learned any Cinema 40 at some point has encountered one of your videos and 
have heard you in their headphones telling them how to use yeah. 4D for the first time. So what is it, how do you learn? Like, is it is it literally just kind of like kicking tires and exploring and noodling out little kind of obscure corners of the program or is it through trial and error? How do you actually get these ideas mm. and how do you keep learning? Yeah, it depends. I guess the, the, to, to come back to the tutorial thing, it's funny, quite a lot of people come up to me and go, oh, that's what you look like. I listen, I've heard your voice so many times, <laughs> which is just a bit weird for me, but... Um, like when I first started doing it, like in, I think it was like Cinema 4D release six or seven and I joined the beta team, which was great. And I was learning a lot of stuff like Thinking Particles and uh, Espresso and there was just, the internet wasn't the way it was now. It was a lot slower. You didn't have video tutorials then, it was all written tutorials and there was nothing for cinema at all. So I just started sharing the knowledge and because I was on the beta team, you get a lot of artists from all around the world from different disciplines like character animators and uh, maybe some more design oriented people so like a real mixed bag of skills which is great because everyone is really into sharing so i just thought right, i'll share that as well and started doing it on a blog and it evolved into hellolux.com where we do the training and things like that nowadays like i still beta test for them which is great so we get the software like about a year before it's released in early development alpha state beta state and you kind of you learn it as they develop the features and you kind of guide the programmers as well in, right. and like if they Im implement stuff which is just a waste of time or it's not really working the way you want it to and so you kind of learn like that but I guess probably the way I tend to learn mostly now is when clients ask me to do things and I don't know how to do it and then I, <laughs> <laughs> and then I have to work it out so you learn on the job yeah. but like obviously you know if there isn't a tutorial for it you can fudge your way through it but there are a lot of great people on the beta team and in the community, so I just go and ask if I don't know. And then someone just gives you a little pointer, and that's it, and then you're off, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, it seems to me that from some of your tutorials, it has literally come out of from a, a job where you've figured out how to do something and thought, well, this would be handy to share with people. Exactly. That's exactly what I do. Like, if I, if I didn't do the job that I do, then I would probably struggle a lot to do the tutorials. I really have so little time for doing them now. I've got a couple more in the pipeline, but... It takes me like a year to build a training series now. Mm. But what I tend to do is like if I do a job and it has particular, because I mean what we all, all we're really doing is solving technical problems. Obviously there's the design and the aesthetic side of it, but I don't really tend to teach that so much. I tend to teach more of the technical side. So a client will come to me with a problem or something they want done and we have to work out how to solve it. And if it's a particularly interesting or intricate route that we go down, then I remember it and I keep it. And then I very often repurpose it into like either a free tutorial or as part of some professional training. And I think that's good as well because it's like they're real world problems. You know, if I had to sit down and come up with all these different ideas, it would take forever. You know, you can't yeah. churn out a tutorial in 24 hours of a good piece of work because mm. you can't really do. I mean, I know everyone does every day. It's not to say they're all rubbish, but to do a really well polished, crafted piece of work takes a lot of exploration, design work, technical things. You overcome all these problems at the end of it. You've got this solution that you've done which may may or may not look great but in that process you've got all of those problems that you've solved and you can repurpose them into training and that's beneficial to people as well because it's like a real world example is that beneficial to you as well because i mean i hear this from a lot of teachers it's like when you teach something you almost embed it in your kind of brain as well mm. so it's like you've, you've learned something you've taught it and then now it's kind of there yeah i guess to a certain extent um, originally I started doing the training really just to share the knowledge and stuff like that but now I do it to share it still 
but like I do free tutorials more to people, pull people to the site so that hopefully they maybe they buy some of our yeah. professional training because it's kind of like um, I guess it's like a lot of jobs but when you do this you you do your job you finish it you get paid and then it's like when's the next one coming along yeah. <laughs> whereas with the training it's a bit more of a passive income to a certain extent so it just helps to feed my kids and Make sure they, you know, have school uniform on and stuff. <laughs> yeah, because yeah. yeah, budgets blow in this industry. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Um, so, <laughs> speak from so um, you're a, still a beta tester for Maxon. You've been a beta tester with them for a long time. And mm. That must be really interesting to be see the cutting edges or to see the kind of the, the sausage being made, if you like. How receptive are they to feedback? And is it as exciting as I imagine, knowing what is coming up in the in the in the new release yeah yeah i mean it is exciting they're very receptive they've opened themselves up a lot more recently over the last few years they've really kind of exposed themselves to the public they were a bit of a closed door before and they wouldn't really let anyone know anyone what their kind of um, roadmap was but they've been a lot more open about it now showing previews and things like that like the new renderer that they've got it is really good being part of the beta team but it's actually it's not as easy it's not just like as glamorous as it sounds like if you don't do the work and test then you know they they kick you off the team. So you have to work yeah. hard for it. Right, right, right. You've got to, I mean, there's no point in having beta testers if they don't yeah, tell you what's it. going on, right? Yeah, that's right. I mean, the whole point of it, because Cinema is such a stable app, they want people to um, you know, like test everything, find all the problems, bugs, so that they can fix it. So when they release it, it's a nice stable mm. release. So do you have a certain quota that you need to meet or um not i don't think so not really they do on the on the i don't know if i should say this under nda but i'm sure it doesn't matter because i'm sorry max on no they have like um they're really great they have a forum that we use where we all share ideas and we talk about it and like um bug reporting stuff like that but they do every now and then post like a hall of fame of like you know just for the ones that haven't done any work um like and honestly I don't really have any time for beta testing, so like a lot of the time I just use the uh the betas in production. <laughs> yeah, it's the only way I can manage to find time to test it. But on the other hand, it's like really thorough testing yeah. at that point because you're doing real world things. It's easy to sit down and open it out and like play with the new features, but you you know, in, until you put it under pressure and work hard trying to achieve a certain thing. That's when you really like are testing the program properly. So has that affected how you've approached some briefs? Because you're like, well, there's this new tool. I need to test it. Uh, it could pro possibly work with this brief. Yeah, well, <laughs> maybe not really. Um, I think if it's an exciting feature, like when they first introduced the new dynamics and stuff like that, I kind of was like, I really love this. I'm going to work this into a, a job. If it's quite an open brief yeah. and you can use it, then then that's great. Or otherwise, just using the tools in like alternative ways as well mm -hmm. to make it fit the brief. Like with the Make It titles, we just use like the Fracture Voronoi for generating typography, and really most people would look at that tool as uh, like a, a generator for like exploding things. They'd just be exploding heads and exploding cars, whereas we used it by driving it through like text splines and stuff to generate procedural type for, right. for some of the speakers. So that was like that was interesting. I kind of like to use the the new features if possible, um, just because it's more fun, isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's actually something that I really enjoy when I'm doing your tutorials is that you tend to sort of use things from one part of a program in another part of the program that hadn't occurred to me. It's it's more it's Cinema 4D is less like an app and more like a kind of environment where it rewards discoverability and and playing around. Is mm. that is that something that you 
that you're conscious of when you're like thinking how do how do the parts fit together and how can I use this elsewhere? Yeah, I mean definitely it's a playground for sure. I think that's the wonderful thing about it is that you can jump into like the MoGraph tool set using the cloners and stuff and you can make cool stuff really quickly. Mm. You know, so it really opens up the environment for like experimentation and playing. Very often it depend it really depends on the brief. Like if you get a really open brief and you're doing the full kind of concept direction design and uh, you know that's great because you can you can go crazy with it but a lot of the time the briefs aren't that loose and it's really like if you're working with an agency and they've given you script and a storyboard and style frames then you you have to just work out which is the is the appropriate tool for the job kind of thing talking about so you talked about make it so you did the titles you also did the identity for this year mm. how how open was that it was really open, really? yeah. Yeah, it was interesting. I mean, we it was a pretty short time frame for the initial logo development. And it was weird as well because, like, last year when they did it, they pulled an illustrator from Behance, a, guy, a girl called Shavalini Kumar, and she had a particular style using, like, isometric vector sort of graphics. Um, and they uh, basically took her style and, re and built the logo using that, you know, her, her kind of look. So it's not like tradition, like a mark in the traditional sense of company logo, where they say we want a logo. Really, they wanted something that was a bit more than that, like an illustration almost. So we had to sort of try and find a design that was somewhere in between. But we were left to our own devices. We kind of tried to think of a metaphor of how the Creative Cloud suite is a collection of apps and you can pull parts from it to create your own toolkit, depending on which discipline you have and the community coming together. So we sort of wanted to the logo to be like, playful, colourful and like modular, made of lots of different pieces mm -hmm. um, as a sort of metaphor for that. And also we, we knew that we had to create a few versions of it as well for the different events. There's like a, there's an online logo and there's a local logo and then there's the main logo. And I think we're doing one for something in China as well. So by building the logo the way we did in a modular approach meant that we could like cycle through the colours or change the orientation of the shapes and stuff like that, which would then keep them all from the same family but make each one fairly unique. Mm -hmm. um, so that collaboration, uh, the most recent Make It titles and the ones last year were with Mike Tessetto of Never Sit Still and you guys also worked on the amazing Opera House graphics for the Vivid Festival this year um, where you collaborated with Ash Boland. I was wondering what have you learned through collaborating? on all of these like very large, very sort of time sensitive projects. You can't tell the Vivid Festival that it's going to be another couple of days before mm. the Opera House <laughs> is ready. Um, there, there are obviously some advantages, but are there also pitfalls? And, and what have you learned through your collaborations? Um, well, as far as Vivid goes, we were pretty late into that. And we worked with um, Spinifex with the actual production company that were hired to do it. And they asked us to come and collaborate on it with them, which was great. And I've worked with Ash quite a lot in the past. I guess I have a history of collaboration because Lux is like, there's only one or two of us depending and, um, and then we have late freelancers when we need them. And sometimes I work in my studio and do projects directly with the end client. Other times I collaborate with other studios. So it's nice because you get like a melting pot of ideas. Everyone brings something new to the table. Mm. So it's not just like the, the same people around the same table all the time. And you know, some people just bring something and you just never would have thought of it at all. Yeah. So it's kind of really refreshing. So I've managed to like, work with people like Patrick Clare and Ash Bolland and lots of different people from different companies. And um, you know, it's like, it's quite humbling really, some of the people that you get to work with because their work is so awesome and it's diverse. Whereas if you're always at the same studio with the same people, 
working with Mike and Never Sit Still has been great. You know, we did the Adobe last year. Vivid was like massive. It was a real like have slog. Have you even approached something like that? Yeah, well, the, the, it was Ash. Ash has got this strange vision, you know, and he wanted to create. Um, he wanted to kind of convert the opera house into a creature, like a living, breathing creature, as a metaphor to like the content that it, that they display there. So he came to. Uh, Spinifex approached us. It's funny because Ash approached me as well independently and they both asked if we wanted to do it. Didn't really realise the scale of it. <laughs> like eight minutes of 4K footage in seven weeks was a pretty big undertaking. So we put in a lot of long hours and it kind of burnt us out a bit, to be honest. Really? But it was, um, it was a huge honour and massive privilege. And when we saw it on the day, it was, it was just amazing. It looked amazing. I was there for the opening night. I actually stood near Mike. And uh, yeah, it was just... I mean, you were probably there as well, but um, just it was fascinating and, and amazing and, and probably one of the best I've seen. So. Oh, that's cool. Thank you. Well, that's really down to Ash and his vision. I mean, when we started the job, he gave he presented us with a whole bunch of um, style frames that he'd done, really, essentially one for each creature that was just a still. Some of them were like uh, Photoshop mashups. Some of them were like some 3D renders from older projects and things that he kind of put like he, he gave us the PSD file for it as well for each one. They were like 500 layers, and <laughs> just like a mishmash of stuff. Um, and some of them were just sketches that he'd done. Um, and like we worked with him and kind of brought those to life. Wow. So it was, it was a huge honor. But the thing with Ash as well is that his, his stuff was really derived from nature and a lot of the things that are around us all the time, yeah. like insects and leaves and flowers. And just like, but if you stop and pick up, pick up that flower and actually look inside and and examine it and then you just it's like these alien things you know and like insect heads and but he would take a design and then you'd get like a, a caterpillar texture and he'd put that onto like a squid or something or and so it's definitely a lot of it down to him but at the same time like the, anyone that does 3d knows that those kind of organic things are like they're the toughest to do yeah. <laughs> they're the toughest <laughs> yeah. uh, eight minutes of 4k organic things yeah. Um, so when when you're working on a project of that scale, obviously Ash did the style frames. I mean, is it? It's it's obviously important to have a really clear idea of where you're going, what the destination is. But do you try to build in wiggle room in the process as well? I mean, is it important to make sure that you because you don't really know what it's going to be until you start getting into it, presumably. Mm. Yeah. Well, that's always difficult with a lot of stuff. Is that you can until you try it, you don't realise all the problems that you're going to overcome. We did a lot of R&D for that, you know, like we didn't just jump in and start building them. We kind of looked at his boards and like one of them was a bunch of parasites just that, that kind of grow across the, um, the surface of the sails. And we ended up making them look like jelly beans and nice and fun because so it was a bit more family oriented. But like, I think at the time we were calling it happy cancer. <laughs> it was like, <laughs> but like we went through these like loads of R&D of how we could grow them and what they would look like and how they would feel just small sections. And, you know, so that rather than jumping right in at the deep end and trying to just complete the, the whole thing, like building little sections of it, thinking that would work. And yeah, yeah so we definitely... Um, tried to prepare ourselves as much as possible, but it's like with every project, you know, it's like exponential. It just ramps up, up and up and up. Yeah. Um, and then obviously, you know, renders fail, things go wrong. So yeah, we didn't have much wiggle room. <laughs> <laughs> so just for our listeners though, like how long did you have for the job? And then like, was it months? Or seven weeks for the, uh, seven, weeks, seven weeks we worked on the Vivid thing and we did about eight minutes. There was, a, I think it's 15 minutes in total. Yeah. Um, spin effects that took on some of the shots 
uh, Rich Nosworthy, um, a guy from New Zealand, he did one shot, and a guy in Slovenia, um, Twisted Polly, his name's Nate Polanska, can't remember the surname, sorry Nate, um, but he took on one of the shots as well. It was weird actually, because like people in different parts of the world, and like Rich in New Zealand did one of the, modelled one of them, and then Nate's in Slovenia animated it, and then I did the shading and rendering of it. Right, yeah. So yeah, it was like really collaborative yeah, like that. Yeah, yeah, so that was pretty cool. So out of that seven weeks, how long did you spend on R&D? Yeah, probably like seven weeks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it was a bit like that. It was R&D all the way through. Right. Um, but like we, we, we tried to be diligent and break it down into the various shots and look at what was going to be the most difficult and taxing and also what might be like the most render mm -hmm. intensive. But it was weird because one of the shots, which was like not really a creature at all, it was like a whole honeycomb of, of cubes um, mm. with a hole in the middle and it was like really geometric and not organic at all. And we thought, oh, well, that one would be easy. And um, Ash like was quite hard to please on that one. It, and it ended up being really, really difficult. Right. When we, th we thought at the beginning that that was gonna be one of the more challenging, uh, one of the simpler shots, but it turned out to actually be more challenging. Yeah. I just don't think he wanted it to look like that typical MoGraph, drop a cube into a cloner and having a whole array of cubes of different sizes. So for that one, in the end, we ended up kind of creating like a Python effect to, to represent like the Fibonacci sequence. Mm. So the pattern of them right, was like the inside of a flower or something like that. So it felt really natural. And in the end, like, and then he started really buzzing off it. And, and then we were like, Phew. <laughs> <laughs> Fibonacci sequence to the rescue. Yeah, that's uh, it. What, what proportion of your job is, is would you say is like, technical versus creative or is there even a distinction between those two things I don't, I don't think there I mean there is definitely a distinction but I don't think it's something you can really like uh, um, quantify that easily it really depends on the on the project you know so with the make it titles when me and Mike were really left to our own devices we had the whole creative reign on the whole thing um, so we all sat down as a team and came up with a the, uh, the concept um, and we were using like geometry and bold bright colors and we wanted to design each of the speaker names as individual pieces so they all worked as standalone um, animations in their own right and then um, I do a lot of like technical direction <laughs> in the studio um, and kind of point people in the right direction and then they're, they're left to their devices um, but I, I guess even with the Vivid Opera House job, although Ash directed it, he, his attitude was pretty much like, you know, if it looks cool, we'll roll with it. Mm -hmm. So he had this vision of what he wanted to do, but some of them were sketches. So we were definitely left down to our own devices as far as creativity on that. The difference was we just had to run it by someone else as well. And then he would give his input on it and we'd change it accordingly. Um, but there were a lot of technical issues with that one as well. So I kind of have to wear a different hat depending. Like, I guess like it's funny really because we had like a Dan Bragger work with us on that. He's this uh, guy who who was interning at Billy Blue and he he's left now and he's out freelancing and he's coming back to work with us again next week. We've got Alex Barnett, never sit still, helped on that as well. He helped on that. Um, so there's only four of us in the team, and um, I kind of tend to have to go around and help lot of technical things and made the most difficult thing for me was actually getting my shots done no, right. so every time I sit down to do it and they're like Tim when you want to can you help us with that part so when and you said there were really long days like how how long are we did you see the family at all occasionally yeah. <laughs> no it was like it I mean it was it was pretty insane like I think the thing is is that we really really wanted to it's a once in a lifetime opportunity to do that really and we wanted to really make sure that the work was as polished as possible and anything 
we didn't want anything to slip through that w could look like a mediocre job. So it's down to us, really, in a way that we put those long hours in, because we really wanted it to excel. But yeah, um, seven day weeks for a few weeks, yeah. you know, 20 odd days without a day off kind of thing. I, I think I had a couple of weeks where I was doing like till two o'clock in the morning every day, you know. Wow. Yeah, it's pretty killer. And how did it feel when you finally saw it, the lights went down and the lights came on in the opera house? Yeah, it was amazing. It was good actually. It all kind of washed away, all the stress yeah, yeah, and everything washed away. Because I mean, sometimes people talk about like you, you, you kind of see the final thing and you're like, right, next job. Yeah, no, it washed away to a certain extent. We were really like, it's so weird because when you do that job, the opera house on a like eight, on a you know on a twenty thirty inch monitor, it's quite small. Yeah. You know, when you go down there, it's bloody massive. <laughs> and you're like, oh my God, I forgot about the scale of the thing. <laughs> and it's kind of cool, you know, and there's all these people there and everywhere you look, it's on social media and everyone's yeah. got their cameras up. You know, it definitely gives you a good buzz. Now, the music has a lot to do with that as mm. well. So how, how did you incorporate? Were you listening to that constantly? And yeah, well, we were... so sick of the music by the end of it. Yeah, <laughs> no, I mean, the music for that is like, it's, that was, to me, that was such a weird thing because it was called Audio Creatures and it was Armand Tobin who, who came on board to do it and he went above and beyond. I mean, I think he was commissioned to do like eight minutes and originally we were talking about we were just going to play the audio twice. But then he saw what Ash had done, his frame, and he, he just like did the whole thing, wow. you know, which, which was just great. And I don't know if you've ever heard any of his stuff but he does some quite banging techno-y sort of house, mm. uh, probably not classed as techno, but like some quite banging housey sort of stuff, techno, electronic. Um, but a lot of his things are really experimental, like soundscapes and um, like ambient, like sound design as well. So it worked really perfectly for it, you know? And we just like, uh, th we, we just thought the sound was amazing for it. But the weird thing is, is that when you go down there, you don't really hear it. There's only one place you can go to listen to the audio. And we designed the whole thing. We synced it all with the audio yeah, and everything yeah. like that. And actually, 90% of the people that see it don't see it with the audio. Actually, no. So yeah. it's, it's on the app though, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. If you watch it on YouTube, you get the audio. Yeah. 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 <laughs> but if you actually go to the live event, you don't. <laughs> yeah, I know. Oh, it's a bit absurd, really. So in that instance, when you were doing the, the Opera House, the, the client, I mean, in some sense was Ash. You know, is that, would that be fair to say? You, you were trying to sort of, he had the vision and you were trying to execute on that vision. Mm. And I was just wondering about when you're working with your regular commercial clients and so on, how much of, you know, have you had to learn how to sell in animation as, uh, without actually doing animation? You know, one of the things I see when I'm having conversations about animations is there's lots of big hand waving, lots of making sort of sounds like, and then it's going to go, all this, you know, do you, have, do you come up with a way to sell it into people? Is mm. it storyboards or animatics? Or? Yeah, it really depends on the client and, and, and how, you know, if you work with people like broadcasters and stuff that obviously deal with this sort of thing every day, then you get a totally different reception than if you're working with like someone maybe that someone that manufactures, you know, tins of soup or something like that. Yeah. They don't have any exposure to it. So very often clients will find it really difficult. The, the way that we normally approach that would be, I think the same as most studios, is that we'll come up with a concept as a storyboard which would probably be sketched or maybe it would be done in Illustrator or something like that or in design and, and then we'll make some star frames which would just be stills and they might be a, a mashup with Photoshop and some 3D renders, a lot of cheating to make them look nice mm. but how we envisage the final frame to be and then we just hope that the client can like look at the storyboard or an animatic 
and then they look at the style frame and they can kind of put them together. Right. And that really depends on who it is. You know, a lot of people want to see the final thing before they'll agree to doing it. Yeah. And they don't yeah. realise it's going to take weeks and weeks <laughs> to do that. Sure. So yeah. there's, a, there's a, depending, as you say, on the client, there's some education there. Yeah, yeah, you definitely have to educate the clients as well. And it's important to have like good like uh, sets of milestones along the way where you can sign off so that if you get to the point where you're rendering it and then they decide to change their mind, then you can say, well, we did actually sign that off. Yeah. You know, but it doesn't ever work that smoothly. <laughs> <laughs> How early on in the process um, will you get involved? Is it like right at the sort of um, inception of a, of a strategy with you know, the campaign and that kind of thing, or, or do they usually bring a strategy to you? Is it, will you come along at any stage in the process or is it? Generally, it's a little bit later on. It's, not, it's, it's quite unusual to get a project right from the get-go and be involved in you know, the whole development of it. Make it. The Make It titles were a good example of that. We were there from the very beginning, you know, with the... We didn't, I mean, we did do the branding a tiny bit. It wasn't like the whole branding. We just came up with, like, the, the logo and, a, and some simple rules and the colour palette. But we were there right from the very beginning all the way through to the end. A lot of other jobs, maybe with broadcasters and stuff, they'll have a new TV show they're bringing out or a concept or something like that, and they'll come to me with ideas that they've already done. Some In some ways, especially with, like, a... The bigger agencies, ad work and stuff, they're often the better clients because they know, that, you know, they know their industry, they know their clients, they know the, the customer base. They'll come to you with a very specific idea and they'll already have scripted it and they'll have some very specific style frames and ideas and really you, you're just, you know, it's not like you're just making that a reality. You still put your, your, your part to it. Right. But other times people come and they don't really know what they want, you know, and, and, it, and it can be more difficult because they're not part of that industry. And even though you do quite a lot of work, it's that old thing of clients going, oh, I know what I like when I see it, yeah. you know, yeah. I like it, but I don't love it. Um, <laughs> and I guess um, there's probably, I imagine, there's quite a big disconnect between how long they think things will take mm. just because it is a technology that they no idea about mm, yeah totally I think that I've, probably most people that work in this industry could get that like you might do a whole bunch of shots for a client and they'll come back to you with a list of changes which is perfectly normal and some of them are just a matter of changing a color and others are like weeks of work mm. but they'll put them in the same list and they won't really know mm. which ones are which because obviously they don't do it if I'm doing a job for a bank I don't know how to invest money and you know do pensions the same as they don't know what a, like a pose morph is or what you know any of that stuff is so yeah like Ian says it does come down to educating them to a certain extent and also it's a case of maybe arguing your point as well because a lot of the time clients will be like make the logo bigger you know yeah. make it bolder mm. and or they'll come to you for a piece of work and they're like we want it three minutes long because they think that they're getting more bang for their buck. But you know, you turn around and you say, well really, you want it for 30 seconds. And then you can engage someone for that full 30 seconds. You're gonna get a much better quality piece of work. It's gonna be watched fully. And, and they don't really necessarily get that. And they think that the more time you spend on it or the longer it is, then it's gonna be a better piece of work. But it's not always the case, you know? That's so true. Everyone's attention spans are like fruit flies at the moment online. Yeah, I mean, is that something that both of you need to take into account more and more? Yeah, I, I recently had a job where um, the client wanted to make a whole series of videos that were going to be, I estimate, four or five minutes. And 
I don't think you can keep someone watching for that long unless there's actual nudity. <laughs> so so um, I convinced them like let's make them ten to fifteen seconds each, and it took a little bit of convincing, but I think it was worth mm. it. And is it getting smaller? I mean, are you noticing it? Like you, you were talking about thirty seconds, but you're talking about fifteen seconds. I, I guess it depends on what you're trying to do. If it, there's a big difference between sort of an explainer video, there's a, a minimum amount of time that you can get a message across. Mm. But um, it, it, I, when I'm the, the job that I was talking about, there's 20 of these tiny little videos, and I thought that they would be if they were snackable. So you'd watch one and go, oh, I like that. I watch another one. I watch mm. another one. Right. That was the idea there. Yeah, it's true. I don't know about you, but when I go, like, if I'm like looking through YouTube or Vimeo, and I, you know, on the channels that I look at, which is probably just nerdy MoGraph and stuff like that, I tend to skip them if they're longer than a minute. Yeah. Because I'm not going to get enough. I'm not going to view enough of them, and I can't. I, my time is too valuable to risk yeah. watching one minute thirty seconds. And you know. You've already spent thirty seconds watching the ad. Yeah, and, that's so. it. Yeah. yeah. So I mean, it's crazy, really, because we're so like bombarded with information and stuff now you know like when we were kids it was like three tv channels <laughs> oh god i'm so old yeah. oh we were lucky to have a television <laughs> you know but like now it's like you go on foxtel and then you've got netflix then you've got youtube and you've got like all of the other ones apple tv and it's just like we're saturated with it and people have an ex like such a short attention span mm. you know everything has to be bang 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 super sharp and quick that's exactly right it's with so many different channels and things to look at. I mean, if I sit down and actually try to read a physical book, I'll get through about one or two pages, and I think, "Oh, what's happening on Twitter?" Yeah. Oh, I'm, it's. I think I actually need to shut everything off and just go lock myself away somewhere to really get through it. Because otherwise, I just think my mind has been trained to sort of want a little dopamine yep. hit of social media every. Yeah. Just some, something else. Yeah. It's, it's an interesting thing, and I've talked about this before, but the. Um, I, I buy books like crazy and I have, I've stopped in the last year because I've got so many books I haven't read and I, I'm that person who buys a book and then expects it to be in my brain straight yeah, away. Yeah, yeah. Like I paid for it. Like, yeah. It? You just um, plug into it, yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I actually, um, I get up now in the mornings and I, and I have half an hour where nothing else is on and I just, I focus with, with a pad of paper as well so I make notes and really try and focus and read. And it's um, it's good. It's the only way I can get through because I'm exactly the same. There's mm. always something else going mm. on. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's good. I mean, I try and read most days if I'm not working till one o'clock. Yeah. It's a good way to like wind down. I just read a book, you know, like even if it's only a few pages. And yeah. as, as it falls onto my face, yeah. I'm like, oh, better put, better put this one down. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I often find though when I'm at work, and I, I, I'm not as diligent about this as I should be, but like I read um, Tim Ferriss' Four Hour Work Week. I read it quite a few years ago, and, I, and you know, it's a bit of a pipe dream, of course. But like he has some really good points in there on productivity and one of the things that he says is like only do your emails twice a day yeah. and don't do it till midday and I actually do that quite a bit if I know I've got stuff to do I'll get to work my phone is always on silent which my wife hates yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it's like face down on the desk yeah. and then I won't have Facebook Twitter or email or anything open because the thing is as humans like your attention span is pretty bad really and like, you, it takes a while you know when you're trying to work and you're trying to get in the zone you get in the zone you get in the zone and it's like ding ding yeah. Whoop, whoop, beep, yeah. beep, doop, doop. And every time that happens, you like, Whoa. you look at it, and then you have to get back in the zone. Yeah. And your productivity, like, I mean, and it's no wonder that companies ban Facebook and stuff like that, because I think oh, we have so, we're bombarded with all this digital stuff that, like, productivity must be, like, at an all time low since um, humanity was on this planet, you know? <laughs> it's so true. I've started doing that as well, just like not turning off the email, quitting the email app for a while. It's, a, it's an amazingly empowering. Mm. Yeah. feeling not being distracted I think John John Cleese talks about writing comedy 
and he said to get in the flow took him about half an hour to get out of the flow took him a second right. but it always took him another half an hour to get back in yeah so it's true he, isn't it he would do everything to make sure that there was no way that he could get out of the flow yeah what has twitter ever done for us yeah <laughs> <laughs> so with all of the spare time you have yeah I was, I was wondering how much how important is play in your work process do you get time to just play and, and just try things that don't necessarily have an outcome well like creatively you know is that what you mean yeah, yeah. Oh, not as much as i'd like to Things like this make it tight where I really did experiment and jam out and do kind of a lot of sort of almost like fine art filmmaking experiment stuff, you know. Um, I've got two young kids, so a lot, if, if I get a chance to play with Lego, then, yeah. then that's good fun. <laughs> and they love drawing, so I do drawing and stuff with them. That's the kind of play that I do. Yeah. I don't have enough time really to experiment as much as I like. But sometimes if I'm just, you know, sitting down watching television and I'll just have my laptop on and just jam out especially if there are new features coming up in the software and stuff i'll just kind of play around with it to see what could be possible mm. i'd like to have more time to do that yeah um but yeah managing family and work and all of that is is really difficult these days i think i think we can relate to that matt yes we can <laughs> um tim you spoke at NodeFest in melbourne last year it was a very interesting and entertaining talk um i was wondering how important obviously melbourne's got NodeFest. sydney doesn't have a node fest. How much? How important is the motion graphics community in what you do, and and how do they compare between here and the UK, for example? Yeah, I've been here nearly ten years now, so I'm not sure how things have changed over there. But like, I do think, you know, it's a bit of a global village anyway. And the motion graphics community, especially things like cinema and the Adobe stuff, like After Effects, the people are really generous. You know, there are like forums like Creative Cow and CG Society and stuff like that, and that. You know, I don't have time to really go to those forums as much. And, um, but like people are so willing to share the knowledge. Uh, it's awesome, really. So I think it is a very close community. Why, why do you think that is? I mean, in this community more than potentially other communities, there's a, there is a real sharing. Mm. Why, why do you think that is? Yeah, I, I'm not really sure, to be honest. Um, I, I think everyone kind of knows everyone as well, to a certain extent. Not like actually knows them, but knows of them. That's one of the nice things about doing what I do because Mac's on a really, really um, amazing with because of the beta testing and the, and the projects, like some of the caliber of the projects that we get to work on. So they've flown me, like one of the nice things is they have flown me around the world quite a lot. I've been to like Amsterdam for IBC and Vancouver for Seagraph and Vegas for NAB and um, LA and uh, I've been to um, Singapore and stuff like that, which is pretty cool. And it's nice to go to Melbourne as well, a bit more closer to home for Node, which was good. And that was through, um, you know, I hooked up James and stuff with the guys at Maxon and they've been really great as a sponsor and stuff for that, which is, which is amazing. So really that's down to them as well. And you go to these places and you get to meet all these people that you've only ever spoken to on Twitter or on, so that, that's really nice. And most of them are like really great, normal people, you know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you get to hang out with them, have a few beers and, and, oh my God, talk the most nerdy stuff. <laughs> Talking about nerdy stuff, you uh, and Mike just did a workshop and you promised you were going to go nerdy. Yeah. How, how nerdy did you go? Pretty nerdy. <laughs> yeah, I think people liked it. We got a clap at the end. It was good. I, I, I think it was good because one of the things that we did with the, the titles, we kind of approached it in a way that we wanted to create. We wanted to create like a, um, a different title sequence for each person, a different design for each person and we wanted to almost base it either maybe as a like a reference to their work or maybe the discipline that they work in um, 
Like, so for, for instance, Kitty Opalaskas, one of the speakers, her work is very handcrafted, handmade paper stuff. So we, like Mike did the animation for that. I designed the, the logo for her, or the speaker name for it. We did it like a playful way, almost like it was made out of um, wooden blocks. And then Mike animated it all using like traditional animation techniques, using keyframe, not quite traditional as in camera and rostrum, but you know, at, using keyframes and adjusting all the curves. And then one of the other ones, like James Noble, that we, that we did, I did that all using like a much more procedural approach, almost like a computer generated title sequence. And that was like really nerdy, but it was a really alternative way of using the software of things that people wouldn't necessarily think of. So although we nerded out to a certain extent, we also touched on more organic, natural um, or traditional techniques. So yeah, hopefully there was the right balance there. I've, I've been trying to keep you guys from nerding out, but you know, we've got five minutes left, so <laughs> if you wanted to nerd out completely. Well, I'm, I'm curious we're, to know. Yeah, Tim. we're just going to talk in hexadecimal. One zero zero, which is binary, of course. <laughs> um, so I, I was wondering, is there any other, Cinema 4D is your main like weapon. Is, are there any other packages that you are excited by? I mean, I think you've done work in Houdini and RealFlow as well. Is, is there anything else that, are those, um, how exciting are those? Are they up and coming? Is there anything else that's on the horizon that floats your boat? They're very exciting. Yeah. <laughs> no, they're cool. I'm like, I'm so, such a noob in Houdini. Yeah. I wish I had more time for it. I think you've got to be like a bit of a programmer to use that, oh, really? which is like, I don't know, the, the whole industry is so saturated with software now, like even the renderers that are out there. You know, I'd really like to get into learning Redshift, which looks pretty good. I have a render farm and stuff, of course, but they're all CPU based and it's getting a little bit old now. So I'm looking to upgrade and maybe go GPU. Um, and I thought you'd, have you not jumped to PC? I thought you'd yeah, I've got PCs now. Yeah, yeah. yeah we we abandoned Apple like about two years ago, I think, really. And, and uh, did it, was that a smooth transition? What, with the yeah, it's pretty painless. Yeah, I can't stand Windows. Right. But it's a much more faster and cheaper machine. I can buy two decent machines for the type of for the price of like a trash can. Yeah. You know, and a trash can is like such old technology now. It was a no-brainer, really. Yeah, the, yeah. the trash can, um, yeah. if I'm not mistaken, is the Mac Pro. Yeah. Yeah, which was a very expensive machine that nothing happened to before. I know, and Apple just really, like, I've been an Apple, I think the only reason I was with Apple was because when I left uni, I worked in an Apple center, and I got my hands on hardware there at a good price, and it's almost like getting a bank account, in it? You, don't, you just don't move over from it. So all the software I've ever bought has always been Apple. But nowadays, it's, you know, it's a lot easier especially with things like Creative Cloud and all these subscription-based models, whatever you think of that, it just makes it easier to switch platforms. You know, before it was when you got a boxed copy of software and like it was, it was expensive to switch over to a different platform. Yeah. But like, I mean, as far as what's on the horizon, I, I, you know, there's like VR seems to be a really big thing. I'd, I've never had a go on like tilt brush and stuff like that. I wouldn't mind trying that. I bet that's kind of crazy being mm. in an immersive environment painting and things like that. Um, yeah, uh, cinema is always good. Real flow I haven't used for a little while. Um, I've just recently bought like the whole Substance suite, Substance designer and Substance painter and stuff like that. They look pretty good. I I just, substance. Yeah, it's kind of cool. Substance designer is a way of kind of creates like a node-based way of generating um, procedural materials and textures and things like that. And then you can expose certain parameters. So you might create like a, a like a metal material with paint on it. And then you have some parameters for how rusty it is around the edges and flakes and things like that. And it's, you know, it's all generated through. I've seen some amazing stuff been done with it. 
And yeah. Substance Painter is for painting directly onto 3D models. Okay. But honestly, I bought them like six months ago and I <laughs> haven't had a chance to learn them yet. <laughs> do, they, do they plug into cinema? Yeah, you can load the Substance straight into cinema, but they work with loads of things like Unity Game Engine and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. I think really the whole like world of television and computers are all like they're slowly just going to become one. You know, you've got all these smart TVs now that you can go on the internet and... Um, you know, the world of broadcast is going to change considerably, I reckon, over the next 10 years compared with what it is now. It won't be like broadcasters in the traditional sense of making TV shows. People like Netflix have shown that, mm, yeah. you know, and I think that that's going to merge even more with the youtube Vimeo kind of thing. Yeah, and I wonder how much more we're going to see um, real-time um, motion. And, and we're seeing a lot of uh, development in terms of um, UX animations, for example. There's SVG online, but also what people are doing with the very, very, very powerful PC GPUs, for example, for gaming, the what's what people are able to achieve with that now is incredible. Yeah, it's amazing. It's amazing considering like I grew up with really basic one-screen computer games where you just have to get from the top to the bottom. Yeah. Now they're like these fully immersive 3D environments, yeah. and also the experiential stuff, you know. And, and it is a big, big brother. It's like every you go to a bus stop, there's a bloody advert on the floor. There's one on the seat. There's one behind you. And more and more places are having like screens everywhere you look. There's a screen driving along the road. There's a screen. Yeah. And you know when we when we worked originally and like doing TV ads back in the day, we delivered it all on DigiBeta tape, and that was it. You know, and if there was a print job involved with it, that would be a separate thing. Now I think as a as like a creator of these kind of things, you have to create it for like 50 different devices and it has to be used in a 500 different places. Mm. So like the world has just kind of come exploded into this extremely huge digital environment and all of that, you know, is waiting for content. Mm. Yeah, and with, with the likes of, um, we're seeing with Snapchat filters, for example, and that augmented reality mm. is, is another dimension which I, th I think we're just at the cusp of. Um, Apple have just released AR kit as well, which is going to make it really easy for developers to build apps that have got augmented reality. And some of the demos I've seen for that are mind blowing. So I feel like with that plus, plus a pair of glasses, you won't have to ever look at the real world again. Yeah, I know it's weird, isn't it? It's like you can buy like you can get Lego apps and stuff. Yeah. Come on, what's wrong with the real plastic yeah, pieces? Yeah. <laughs> I did an augmented reality job for Lego not long ago actually, and it was like they built a huge Death Star in one of the malls in the um, North Sydney. And um, I had to do like an X-wing fighter fly around, and then the Death Star explode. And like there was a real physical Lego Death Star that they made, and then people were invited to come and stand in front of it. And then they um, the the augmented reality thing happened with them there, and the thing flew around them, and the whole thing exploded. And then they got a little video of it, and they put it on Facebook or something. Right. It's pretty weird, yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, it's pretty funny. I mean, it's Lego and Star Wars, and you know. <laughs> Kind of a cool job, eh? About as nerdy as it gets. <laughs> how, how does your kids feel about that? Yeah, they love it. Yeah. They love that. They, yeah, they really do. I mean, they, they're, you know, they've grown up with the internet and like all these devices. It's second nature to them. Mm. Like, I'm old. I can't even set the video recorder. <laughs> What's well, a video recorder? <laughs> your kids have to go to school, and you're going to go and make an X-wing fly around a Death Star. That's yeah, yeah, I know. I think. I think that brings us to our end. Yeah, so okay, cool. How can people find more out about you and what you're doing? Um, well, um, at Hello Lux on Twitter. Mm -hmm. And if you want to see the work we do, that would be at lux.tv. And uh, we also have some free training and some professional stuff, which you can get at hellolux.com.
come by and say hi. Fantastic. Tim, it's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. Well, thank you for having me.